to my transition. Hello, everybody online, everybody here in person. So excited to be with you guys. My name is John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs. Welcome. It's an overcast day, but I'm really excited to continue journeying through the book of Matthew. If you're with us last weekend or you joined us online, what it is, we're starting a new series as we walk through the book of Matthew. And today, we get the exciting task of breaking down and understanding the genealogy. Now, I know for many of you, if you read your Bible, if you study your Bible, if you track with your Bible, this is likely one of those well-worn pages, right, where there's a lot of notes out to the side, because you definitely have never done what maybe I've done, maybe the majority of you, where you see it's a genealogy and you're like, okay, just skip to chapter two. We'll just start there and keep going. That's kind of funny. Wow, tough crowd. So glad to be with you guys, though. But no, sincerely, here's what we're going to see. From the first pages of Matthew, this divinely inspired author is going to have one message for you and for me, and he's going to prove this point repeatedly. The king has come. Who is Jesus? The king has come. So pray with me, and then we're going to jump into it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it does. It comes alive, changes hearts. God, I'm asking that you would show us what you intended through, through your letter to the author of Matthew. Would you help that to just demonstrate this truth of what it would have meant for you being the king to have come? I can't do that. Only you can. Lord, uh, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I can remember, and I referenced this a little bit last week, when I was first meeting my wife. So for me, this would have been 2011, uh, or maybe 2012, I was first meeting my wife. I'd met her at this July 4th game, uh, like a July 4th party. We played volleyball. That night, I'd called her. I asked her out. She did not return my phone call for 24 hours. It was like breaking my heart. But I did something that evening that I'm not proud of, okay? I'm not proud of that I did it. I was not a physical stalker, because that's super creepy, right? But if that's you, we're really glad you're here. Jesus, there's hope, right? I was something that we've all recently invented. It, it kind of came with the privilege of my generation, a digital stalker. Who here's ever stalked somebody on Facebook? Okay, guys, you're a bunch of liars. This is a safe place. Employers use it. HR uses it. You can go Facebook. You could go Instagram. I don't remember exactly which one I did, but I can remember thinking, okay, I got to find out everything I can about her. Who is this girl? What are her likes? What are her dislikes? What's her background? What's her family like? All that kind of stuff. How do I find out who is Taylor? You can ask that. Our national media has done that this week, right? And trying to figure out who is Amy, Coney, Barrett. What do you do? You examine everything, reputation, background, experiences, education. This is just what people do as a culture. When you want to find out who someone is, you try to learn everything about them. The background, the experiences, where they came from, best as you can, highs and lows. Are there any scandals in their life? Anything like that. Here's the reason I start with that. Today that we are going to look at the background of Jesus' life. We are going to look at where he came from, the scandals, the high moments, the low moments. 
And the reason we're going to do that is Matthew, this book that we're working through, this beautiful book, he's answering this question, this question people have been asking for millennia and centuries. He's answering it emphatically off the first page. Who is Jesus? There's a time in my life where I absolutely wrestled with that question. It's one even now in faith I still can. Who is he? What does he mean? Why did he come for me? Why did he come for you? Did he really come? Is it really true? Did he actually die on a hillside outside of Jerusalem? Or did you and I just hear a nice fable? Who is Jesus? This question, it's not unique to you. You're not the first person, family, husband, father, mother, daughter, to have wrestled with who is he. There would have been a whole city, whole region really, outside of Jerusalem, especially Jews who were asking the question, who is Jesus? They would have heard he was a so-called king of kings, king of the Jews, the Messiah to come, the one, the king. But kings don't die. They would have heard, though, that maybe they had a friend or they knew someone who said, no, 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 the king that was dead, he came back to life. I saw him. Maybe, just maybe, some of these first century Jews went, and after, after hearing from a friend or seeing a loved one that said, no, no, I've seen him. It's true. He's back to life. He's the real Messiah. I wonder if they would have gone and asked, like a local rabbi, and said, hey, I just want to get a second opinion. Who is Jesus? There's a curiosity then. There's a curiosity now. Was he a good teacher? Was he a crazy, lunatic madman? Was he the king? Was he the one who died for your sins and who died for mine? Lord of everything. The genealogy of Matthew is leaning into the context of a first century Jew, leaning into your heart and mine, and he's saying emphatically, he is the Messiah. He is the king. Let me prove it to you. And he does. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in one of the most exciting chapters of your Bible, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 all the way down through 17. We covered the first half of verse 1 last week, so if you're looking for even more context, we, we literally like recapped that, your Old Testament. You're welcome to go back. You can listen to that. But where we'll be is verses 1 through 17, where Matthew, he's answering this question, who is Jesus? He's going to give us three answers emphatically. His first answer is Jesus is Messiah, Messiah, we learned last week, it means anointed one. It means chosen one. In Greek, it translates the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like, like to be a first century Jewish parent, you would not have gone and instilled morality in young kids to respect authority by saying, hey, can you go introduce yourself to Mr. Christ? That would not be how that would have worked out. Christ was a title. It was a claim of divinity, lordship, kingship, savior of the world, Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. He's going to reinforce that in the second part of verse 1, and we'll see that today. The second thing he's going to say is Jesus is redeemer. To redeem something, I'll define it. It means to purchase something from a penalty. A redeemer is one who comes and buys someone, 
buys something at great cost. Jesus is the redeemer of your sins and mine. The third, he's going to say Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to talk about the virgin birth, and we're actually going to break that down more even next week. But that's what Matthew's going to do. Right off the beginning, he's just going to say, who is Jesus? Let me tell you. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Again, as a quick recap, as you're turning this book, it's written to a Jewish audience. So the book of Matthew, he's going to double down on this promise of the Old Testament. He literally reaches into Old Testament scriptures, and he bridges the gap to a new covenant. That's what he's doing. He's here, he's going to show the genealogy. Think the family tree of Jesus. Anybody here ever done like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or something like that? Great, I'm going to stop asking for crowd participation. Folks online, I bet you guys are just so engaged, right? Well, hey, I, I haven't. My grandfather, he's done that, gone back. Like Swedish ancestry came here, like early 1800s family. We did corn, uh, had a family member, all this stuff go down. I don't know that much of it, though. Here's why. Generally, Western culture, we don't put a high value on a family tree, lineage, or heritage. Our culture, it's much more individualistic. Right? Now, that may not be true for you, right? particularly some minority communities. They put a whole high value on it, and that's understandable. Aspects of other parts of the globe, it matters so much who your dad is, who your mom is, who your great-great-great-great-grandfather is. Matthew's showing genealogy because this was pedigree. This meant so much in a Jewish context. And through this genealogy, he's showing who is Jesus. So I get the joy of pronouncing a whole lot of names, and yes, we are going to read all 17 verses. So grab your Bible, or you can track with me up here, and we're going to read 1 through 17. I'm going to break it up as we go to explain parts of it, and then we're going to work through some of the details. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you want to understand that part, go back, listen to last week. We're picking it up here. The son of David the son of Abraham. That's crazy, right? Just crazy. I know. This is usually when you just turn and go to chapter two. We're going to explain that. Those are huge. What's going to happen in the genealogy now is he's going to cover three time periods. This first time period, he's going to go to Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. He's going to go from Abraham all the way to David. This next section, he's going to cover about a thousand-year timeline. So stay with me. It's riveting. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon or Salmon, right? Whichever you want to go with, I'm not going to fight you on that, right? Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. First time period, thousand years, Abraham to David. Here's what a Jew would have known, and maybe here's what some of you would have known. If this is your family line, here's what has just been covered. Some of the things, it has just been celebrated. Amazing faithfulness, family betrayal, incest, enslavement, oppression, murder, finding faith in God and repentance, denying faith in God, a zealous worship for God alone, turning their backs on God. 
and the love of false gods. Covenant-making, covenant-breaking. Doesn't skip any of it. Second time period, now we're going to cover about 400 years. This is going to go from David all the way down to Babylonian exile. If you want to learn more about it, you can go back, listen to last week. Here's what it's going to say. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Ha ha, shout out, scandal, that's like first century TMZ, but we'll come back to that. Solomon and the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jehona and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Second time period. 400 years. This covered a time of monarchy in the history of Israel. Here's what you would have seen. This is when kings were put in. They hoped kings would come and bring prosperity. As you know, kings far more often brought greater pain. There was decline, defeat, apostasy, denial of God, moments of brilliance, faithfulness, and beauty apathy. I love the way one scholar described as I was studying this week. He said this, this is Israel's dark ages. Third time period, verses 12 through 16, is going to go from that Babylonian exile to the time of Christ, approximately 600 years. After the deportation to Babylon, I don't really know how to say this guy's name, Chekonia? We'll go with that right? The father of Shilatil and Shilatil, the father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, Abud, the father of Elikim, Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akam, Akam, the father of Iliad, Iliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matin, Matin, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, remember this, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 600 years. Here's what we just covered. Captivity, exile, death. Short-term repentance, long-term spiritual stagnation, silence. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Orations. Aren't you so glad we didn't skip it? Let me show you why we're not going to. Matthew, again, he's asking this question, who is Jesus? Excuse me, he's answering it. This is a question that you have, right? Maybe you're here and you're wrestling with faith, or you're, or you're the person who's come, right? And you keep coming because your parents want you to, your parents have told you to, and you always have. But honestly, as you think about this whole faith thing, there is this massive emotional and spiritual disconnect. Who is he? Seriously, who is he? Because it's true, you either know him and it changes everything, or those who claim to know him are the greatest fools on the planet. Matthew knew they were asking that question. God knows we ask this question. Even if you're here and you say, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God who has saved me by grace through faith in a way that I didn't deserve it. You still have moments where you say, 
Who is he? The first one we're going to see, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. Matthew, in a literary brilliance, he bookends it, right? Verse 1, and then verse 17. That's where he's going to show Jesus is Messiah. He does that through, but let me show you. Verse 1, I'll read that again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's verse 1. Now, if you were to jump all the way down to 17, and I'll show you why these connect. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. As Matthew's answering this question, who is Jesus? He's first going to show us Jesus is Messiah. You see that as he alludes to David and Abraham. As he alludes to David and Abraham, to a Jewish audience, as well as for you and me, he is doubling down on his claim that Jesus is Christ. He is the promised Messiah King. Last week, we looked at that first part of, again, what it means to be called Christ, Savior of the world. This week, I want to remind us, what did it mean that Jesus came as a fulfillment of a Davidic covenant and an Abrahamic covenant? Now, some of you, you, you're like me. You like nerd out on all this stuff. You love it. And some of it, others of you, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm bored. What are we going to learn next? Stay with me. This is beautiful, right? Have you ever wondered, like when you watch the Star Wars saga, like from all the way, episode one, I know not many people like that one, all the way to the very end, how there's these moments where if you understand the history and the narrative, it comes together in this beautiful way and you start to see, oh my gosh, I never thought about Leia and then Luke and then Han and how it connected all the way back with Anakin. Anybody? Right? Okay, so if you're younger, like Harry Potter, you could come and you could connect the beauty of Harry in the beginning and Voldemort and family. Okay, I'm the only one who likes either one. Great. It's the same thing for a Jewish audience. He's showing the brilliance and the beauty of connecting these things. That's why the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant would have mattered. Here's the thing. The Davidic covenant, we, we read about it last week. Covenants were agreements, right? They were agreements between at least two parties of something. It carried far more weight than a contract the way we think about a contract today. There's seven covenants throughout your Bible, two of them, Abrahamic and Davidic. The Davidic covenant is God unconditionally promising something to King David. He promises a lot, but one of the main aspects he says to David is, David, the Messiah will come from your line the one who's going to create a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a forever kind of kingdom, is going to be from your line. To claim Jesus as the son of David is to claim the promised one from the line of David is here, Messiah. Covenants matter. The same thing's true of Abraham. If you know about Abraham, he was the father of the nation of Israel. God made a covenant to him, an unconditional covenant where he promised a lot, but one of the things that he's covenanting, he's promising is, hey, Abraham, from you, a seed, an offspring's going to come, and that offspring's going to be the blessing, Messiah. To a Jewish audience, Matthew is reaching back, and he's saying the one God has promised, he always keeps his promises. Here he is. 
The second thing that really highlights this, it's verse 17. Surprisingly, right? I wonder how many of us as you track through. Anyone else here? I'm not going to actually ask for crowd participation. You might have read 14. And as you read 14, you're like, hey, it's kind of strange that Matthew, the writers are saying 14, 14, 14. Again, I love the Bible. I'm going to nerd out on you guys for a little bit. Here's, here's what that means. Stay with me. 14, it's a symbolic number, right? Between those time periods that we talked about, there's more than 14 literal generations between them. It's a symbolic number. What is 14 symbolic of? See, it meant something to Jews that's lost in translation with us. If I were to ask you guys, hey, who is the best basketball player of all time, right? I imagine most of us, what we should say, okay, Michael, I'd get crowd participation on that. <laughs> I get Michael Jordan, right? Yes. Now, now, what was his number? 23. We knew that. You can reference number 23 in American culture, global culture. We know who you're talking about. You can come and you can see basketball players today wearing the number 23, and you know it's a representative tribute to who? The GOAT, the greatest of all time. That number is symbolic of something. The number 14 would have been symbolic to a first century Jew. Now, I want to explain to you why. Stay with me. Jews had something called gematria. It's interesting. It was, it was in the Hebrew language. Hebrew letters were also assigned numbers, right? So think uh, English alphabet. A, number one. B, number two. C, y'all get it, number three. You're all really smart people, right? But that would be as if you assigned a number to a letter. The Hebrew alphabet, though, it's a little different. They don't use, and particularly even in writing, vowels. So it's just consonants. So they would apply numerical values to letters. King David, his name in Hebrew was spelled, not D-A-V-I-D, why? They don't use vowels. It was spelled D-V-D. You know what the numerical value was for the letter D? Four. The numerical value for the letter V? Six. The numerical value for the letter D? Four. Who, who's a mathematician in here? What is four? plus, now everyone's going to get nervous, four plus six, ten, plus four equals 14. There is an embedded literary code in the first chapter of the book of Matthew that is literally this symbolic reference throughout the whole thing that the Holy Spirit helping Matthew to write to an audience is just this reminder of 14, 14, 14. He is the promised son of David. He is the Messiah. That's the first way 14 shows up. The second way, the second way, King David. I love this. King David, if you go down the list of names, he's the 14th name. Again, I know you and me, we, we miss it in English. To a first century Jew, this would have been like this beautiful design, divine puzzle that they are unlocking and reading, and they're getting it as they go. But there's one interesting part, too. If you remember, we talked about there was three time periods. The third time period went from time of exile to Jesus. But there's not 14 generations there. 
there's 13. It goes 14, 14, 13. The question a first century Jew would have been asking, where's the 14th generation? The 14th generation would have been, who is the father of Jesus? There's no name applied to that. We'll learn a little bit about it today and more about it next week. He's saying there, the divinity. God the Father. See, you and I, we come to the genealogy and we skip it. And the Holy Spirit's like pleading with you. No, no, no. You got to see this. You got to track with this. I know it's different. Our context, their context. But it's this beautiful crescendo effect with this geometry, these numbers, this code embedded within it that's showing who is Jesus? Messiah. Lord, King, he has every right to the throne of David. God has always kept his promises. Why should that matter so much to you and me? Have you ever found yourself praying, hoping, pleading that God would keep his promises with you? You see, to a Jew, it would have shown up, okay, he kept his promise. He's saying this is the son of Abraham. See, to a Jew, it would have shown up, okay, he kept his promise. He's saying it's the son of David. I know that may not carry the same weight to you or to me. But what should carry weight is God has made promises to you. He has absolutely come and he's made promises. Let me give some examples. And this is here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is applying to you. He says that all the pain in your life, he will somehow some way, work it together for good. Have you ever sat there and pleaded for an aspect of faith to cling to that promise? He has made a promise to you that even when this life, there's all these shiny objects and temptations and things that want to take you one way, he has made a promise that following him, it's better even when you don't understand it. He has made a promise that he has made for you an eternal home. An eternal home, not where you float on clouds and play harps. That sounds like hell. He talks about heaven. It'd be beautiful. It'd be the best parts of this life glorified, made perfect. Have you ever wondered if his promise is true to you, church, that he really deeply loves you? Even though you don't deserve it. Even though you and I, we take advantage of that love, even though you and I, we use grace as license for sin, he'll come and he'll say, as far as the east is from the west. See, to a first century Jew, this chapter would have jumped off the idea of, oh my gosh, he keeps his promises, he's the Messiah. But for you and me, do those covenants matter? Yes. But Jesus brought a new covenant. But what is just the base, at least primary thing of why this should matter to you. He kept his promises. He always will. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Here's what we're going to do. The second part, Matthew, he's going to answer the question again, who is Jesus? Right? Now, this is really, if you were to look at it, verses 2 through 16. These are those three time periods we talked about. I'm not going to recap that. What I want to do, though, is I do want to pull out one highlighted aspect, and it's an aspect that Matthew highlights, that God, through Matthew, highlights that you and I probably would have tried to hide. You and I probably would have tried to not reference. Here's the aspect. 
that in this genealogy, as Matthew is answering this question, who is Jesus? The second thing he shows us is Jesus is Redeemer. Jesus is Redeemer. Now, if you remember the definition, it means to purchase something from someone or something. Jesus came to purchase you and I from our sins. If you are not a believer in Christ, you are in, and I know this isn't popular, you are in bondage, in slavery to sin. You call yourself the master of your own life. You're not. There's a God in heaven who despite your dysfunction, to despite my dysfunction, purchased me from it, dying for me, paying the penalty for all of my foolishness. And now he doesn't demand that I come and just get myself together, pull myself up by my bootstraps. He says, believe this too be true. Redemption. Jesus is redeemer. You see this, because right here in this genealogy, anybody notice? Matthew, he includes the names of five women. See, we don't miss that. We, we look past that in our culture, but first century Jewish culture was very patriarchal. Like a first century Jew would have literally prayed as part of a daily prayer in a broken form of humanity that the Bible did not condone, and Christ comes and he upturns. They literally would have prayed, a Jewish male, thank you God that I was not born a woman. And right here, God's saying, you put four women in the genealogy. You didn't do that. Ancestry was traced through males. You didn't do that. So why is Matthew including that? And it's for this reason, redemption. It's showing why he came. L let me give you the examples. Matthew, he doesn't avoid the sin that was in Jesus' genealogy because it's the reason Jesus came. The women he's going to reference, now th these women, they don't include Mary. We'll talk about Mary in a moment. But the first is Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, wife of Uriah, also known as, yeah, okay, Bathsheba. If you can't see it online, it was a little murmured here. It, it was not a great one, right? Wife of Uriah. Here's the thing. If you and I were going to include folks in a genealogy, these are very likely not the ones that you would include. Here's an example, right? Even my own life. When I was 19, I got arrested, right? I was being charged with three things. I went through a pretrial diversion program, right? Anybody else? No, you don't have to answer that one, right? Pretrial diversion program, where basically you do like probation for nine months. Here's why. I wanted it expunged off my record as if it never happened. I wanted it swept under the I'm sure some big brother knows about it somewhere, right? Swept under the rug. Why? So employers and people that you guys wouldn't have to know except I tell everything, right? You guys wouldn't know. Why? I'm not proud of that sin. I don't celebrate that. You would think you wouldn't include scandalous things. These are beautiful and scandalous moments. For example, Tamar. Tamar, if you know this story, she pretended to be a prostitute so that she could get pregnant from her father-in-law. Shout out, that's Jesus' heritage. Rahab did not pretend. Rahab was a prostitute, right? And as a prostitute, as a harlot, she has this amazing faith. She leads the Israelite spies in, protects them, covers them. It's right before the, book of Jer or right before the Battle of Jericho. What was true about Tamar? What was true about Rahab? They were Canaanites. 
Canaanites and Jews did not mix well. Who was a part of Jesus' line? Canaanites and Jews. Ruth. Ruth, if you know the story of Ruth, Ruth, you're like, okay, there's some hope here. Let's brag on Ruth, right? She was a godly woman who by all accounts was most likely today like a a migrant field worker. But Ruth, also a Canaanite. Most specifically, she was a Moabite. Here's why that matters. Do you know what her her, uh, legacy was known for as Moabites? Moabites came from, there was a guy in your Bible named Lot He had daughters that one night, those daughters in their sin, their brokenness, their foolishness, they thought they would never have children. They got their dad lot drunk. They then slept with their dad so that their dad might impregnate them. That downline, Moabites. Shout out to Moabites through Ruth. The final one, the wife of of Uriah, Bathsheba. This is the type of stuff, that's what I'm saying. This would be like TMZ all over the place. This would be where they come. Wife of Uriah, if you remember, even from a few weeks ago, we talked about her, Bathsheba. David comes, looks over the balcony, sees her. He has messengers come. They take her. She, and we don't know the full account, but there is at least adultery, deception. And then David has her husband murdered. Would you make a shout out to that? In your 23andMe diagram that you presented, like for me, I had to do a family history project in ninth grade. Would you do that? Would you have your kids do that? Matthew does that. These women, they stand out for a lot of reasons. And this line, by the way, too, holds men in here that are just literally wicked, cruel, broken, terrible men. But these women, this is the part that would have popped. They stood out for a few reasons. One, they were women. Two, there was scandal. Three, there really was massive racial tension with this. Right? Jews, Gentiles, Canaanites. Right? The early church is going to fight over this. Right? The disciples, not Jesus, looked down on Samaritans and others. There is this demonstration all the way from the beginning that in the line of Christ, who did he come to save? He came to save everyone. Those you would expect and those you would not expect. Those you would think and those you're like, there's no way. Those who do like reasonably good things, even though they're still wicked sinners. And then the worst of the worst of the worst, he he came for them. And right here, chapter one, he absolutely just shines a spotlight on it. Who is Jesus? He is redeemer. How many times when you come to share your story, Right? And, and if you've never been discipled in how to share your testimony, if you're a follower of Christ, we will train you. But how many times do you come up against the friction moment, the friction moment where you say, like, do I, do I say that part? Do I not say that part? Now, sometimes that's because it's, it's neutral and you don't know if it really matters. And then there's sometimes, there's just something in you that's like, I don't want to tell them that. First time I publicly shared my testimony, right? Part of my story of grace, what Jesus did in my life Right? Was, I had terrible relationships with females. I was addicted to pornography. I had a, a wicked and confusing relationship with alcohol. I was depressed. I was out of my mind. I'd gained 50 pounds, lost 50 pounds like 40 times, just depressed, anxious, emotionally vacant. First time I went to share that story, I highlighted the beauty of Jesus. I did not sit in my sin I did not camp in my brokenness. I did not glory in my sin. But I told the truth. Why? 
I've been redeemed. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I am redeemed. Jesus Christ is redeemer. Their brokenness, his family heritage brokenness, your brokenness, my brokenness. Who is Jesus, redeemer? He can redeem the marriage, the family, the generational sin that you right now resent, that you hate, but you are actively by the power of his spirit trying to break the chains of so it can go forward differently. He'll bring redemption if you let him. Who is he? Redeemer. I love the Bible. This is why you don't skip it. It's beautiful. Let's look at this last part. Matthew, he's going to show who is Jesus. He's going to show us one more thing. This is a little bit of, and we're going to hear more of it next week as we do Christmas in October. Verse 16. Verse 16. Matthew 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, we should get one more the father of, but we don't. Remember that. Jacob, the father of Joseph, how's Joseph described? The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, Messiah, King. See, right here at the end of this genealogy, and there's so much more in this. Go study. There's so much more that I had to cut. You're going to see something. The language changes, and it's showing something special about the Christ child. It's showing something divine. The descriptive language of the genealogy, it changes, and it highlights his miraculous birth. See, Matthew, he had been saying for every generation, the father of, the father of, the father of. He says it 39 times. Then he stops, and he switches here. Joseph, the husband of Mary, comma, of whom Jesus was born. It's different language, because here's what was true of Joseph. Joseph was not Jesus' biological daddy. The virgin birth is huge. The significance of the virgin birth cannot be overstated. See, Jesus, he's the biological child of Mary, but he's the divine child of God, his Father in heaven. This would have jumped off the page to a first century Jew. You, maybe even if you don't track with Jesus or you love Jesus and like every Christmas Eve service, you just love it because you get to be reminded of the same exact beautiful story. But the virgin birth for them would have jumped off the page because they said, wait, wait, wait. The prophet Isaiah told us this would happen. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. We're going to talk more about it next week. But it's a big deal. If God divinely promises, a child will be born through a virgin. Why? Virgins don't have children. Okay? Just want to let you all in on that right? It's true now. It's true then. It's this, come talk to me after. We'll do it one-on-one. It'll be, it'll be a good discussion. We'll help you out. It's this showing peace. there's humanity in him, and there's divinity. See, you and I, we desperately need the virgin birth to be true. We need there to be humanity, and we need there to be divinity. I want to show you why 
theologically, why it should matter for your view of God. Here is why Jesus Christ has to be fully God. I mean 100% God, 100% man. If you want to go study it, the technical term is hypostatic union. Here's why he has to be fully God. He has to be fully God so he can live a sinless life, so he can die on a cross to atone for the sins of the world. He had to be God so he could lay his life down and then he could take it back up. He could come for you. He could come for me. He had to be fully man. He had to be fully man so as to sympathize with you and me in our weakness and then to die in our place. You should read this and there should be a heart of not only a prophecy coming true but a heart of thank you, God. Christ is born of a virgin. Because again, it's showing this truth. It's pointing out how the implications of it can't be uh, overstated. It shows how God came down. Do you know that Christianity, we referenced this before, it's the only world religion, I would say it's the only spiritual form of faith, unless you just deny faith in general. Where you do not work your way to some better form of enlightenment. Or you don't have to be a better version of yourself. Some of you are exhausted because you just keep trying. Jesus Christ is your rest. The amazing thing about this is virgin birth means what happened. Jesus Christ, he left the throne room of heaven, ruling and reigning in full power to be born in a stable, to from a young age be hunted, to try to be murdered, to his family, to have to escape to Egypt to then live a life where he came to pursue people. He came to pursue people that would kill him. He came for you. He came for me when I didn't want him. He came for you even though now you don't want him. He came for you even though now you know him and you squander it. Who is he? Humanity, divinity, he is the Son of God. He is a Son of God that has come to take away the sins of the world, your sins and mine. And from that, you don't just get this path where it's just grace, but there's this transformation of the soul, not this broken religiosity, but a change of direction that says, I want to follow. I want to serve. I want to love. Does that mean you have it all together? Nope. Does that mean that who he is, son of God, is worth following with everything? Yes. Guys, here's what we've seen. Matthew, he's answering this question, who is Jesus? He gives these beautiful answers, like straight out the gate. He comes, and last week we talked about he is Messiah. He is the Christ. He reinforces it today. And then we saw through these beautiful women, he's Redeemer. He is the son of God. Here's my question. In your own heart, honestly, who is he? Like if I were to sit with you and try to do my best to remove all family pressure, all cultural pressure, all brokenness of even like a guilt and shame from your sin, and I were to just seriously ask you, honestly, this matters so much, who is he? 
would you use words like he's Savior, he's Messiah, he's King? Would you talk about redemption? Would you talk about how you have been set free, or would you grovel in your sin because that is what has become the most comfortable form of identity for you? Would you say he's the Son of God? Would you say that he died on a cross for you and for me? Because here's what's going to happen. He's going to continue answering this question, who is Jesus? But you're going to see something through the life of even Matthew, the author himself, and the narrative of this book. It's those who know him. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you always. Do you see the end of Matthew? If you don't know that, that's Matthew 28. This great commission, he comes, I'm going to come help you. Divinity has come, and then we're going to go. Then we're going to tell him. Then New Braunfels has to change. Cultural Christianity, it has to die. You instill faith in the next generation, not because you're supposed to, but because it's real. Who is he to you? He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your, for your word, for just what it does in my life and the lives of all of us. I thank you that you included the genealogy. I thank you that are really faithful, smart scholars who can study and know, and there's a church history that connects the first century to us where we can come and rightly divide it. Lord, we love you. Would you help those of us who know you to live for you, not because we have to, but because we love you. And Father, for the folks here who wrestle with you, who don't know you or are confused in it, would you transform an eternity in the same way you came down, would you step into their heart? Bring illumination. Bring salvation. We sure love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.